Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy again. I say again because we, this is what I spoke out of last week, and I just want to continue on <clears throat> from what we looked at in 1 Timothy, and we'll begin reading uh, in chapter 3 and verse 14. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. Well, last time we spent most of our time just looking at this hymn. We said it was probably a hymn of the early church, which uh, gives us kind of a synopsis of the work, the person and work of Christ. And... Um, it probably is just a portion of a hymn. And, but even with that portion, we see a tremendous amount of content. Um, you, you can see why Paul would say in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, that we can teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs if we have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs like, like this one, because it's loaded with teaching. It's, it's something that would be edifying just to, uh, to think on uh, as it's sung in a group of believers, which many of our songs are like that. Uh, we are actually teaching and admonishing one another as we're singing uh, praises to God. So anyway, that's, we, we, looked, we took some time to look at each, each portion of that last time, and uh, noted that there was a great deal of uh, doctrinal content there. But he says, he starts, before he goes into that hymn, he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So, and then he goes in and t talks about Christ in this, and uh, quotes this hymn. So, I think we could say that by common confession, uh, we see that the early church was centered on Christ. 
um, the life, the death, the resurrection, the present glory uh, of Christ. And so, if we take godliness, he talks about this mystery of godliness. If we take godliness to mean piety, to, to uh, be pleasing to God in our life, um, we see that the way we can have true godliness is by looking to Christ and knowing more of Him and coming into more of a relationship with Christ. Uh, in other words, to put it in a nutshell, true godliness is summed up in Christ. Uh, he, go, he, he goes right from talking about the mystery of godliness to, go, to uh, explaining this or just uh, presenting this hymn uh, of praise and uh, adoration to, to Christ. So, godliness is centered in the incarnate Son of God who died for our sins. That is the mystery, the great mystery of godliness. Uh, <clears throat> I was listening to a tape by a man named R Ralph Barnard, and he was saying, now, if you want to understand godliness, if you want to understand how to understand the Bible and what true godliness is, he says, take a spike and pound it through your Bible. And then, once you've got that hole made, take a scarlet ribbon and run it through the hole and tie it. That way, every page you open up, you'll see that scarlet ribbon. He says, that's what you should be seeing. You should be looking for that scarlet ribbon on every page of the Bible, because that's going to teach you. The Bible's there to teach you about Christ. And to teach you, if you want to know what godliness is, you're going to have to zero in on Christ and look to see what the Bible has to say about Him. And, and so just it'd be... Now, I'm not telling you to go do that. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't either. But he was in your mind, think of that, that every page you'd open, you'd see that little scarlet uh, ribbon there. Well, that's what we need to think on if, if we're going to advance in this thing of godliness. Unfortunately... That is not often the case, and it certainly isn't the case if you get to listening, listening to false teachers because they're going to steer you off in some other direction. And Paul says, right after he goes into this thing about Christ, he says, But the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, here's somebody come along and teaching you, here's, here's another way of godliness. Here's another way of being right with God. Um, of course, they, whoever's teaching this, is, he, uh, Paul says it came ultimately from deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I think what Paul is saying here is that wherever there's uh, an emphasis on truth, you can be sure that Satan's going to be there to try to bring in error, going to try to steer you in another way. You might say it this way, wherever there is the mystery of godliness being uh, presented, the mystery of iniquity is going to be right there also, trying to distort, confuse, and distract us away from that truth. So he says that there will be these deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons that come forth. 
he says, in later times. Now, I don't know how much later he was thinking because I think what he's saying here is that this, this is already starting, you see. It's already starting. Um, Timothy uh, is in Ephesus. That's where Paul left him to uh, deal with some difficulties. Well, why don't we just turn back here just to get the feel here. Um, in First Timothy chapter 1, he says... Uh, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So he left him there saying, now I want you to specifically to keep these people on track. Don't let them get off into some of these uh, what he calls strange doctrines and myths and endless genealogies. So <clears throat> there was this uh, tendency, even in the early church, for these doctrines of demons to come in. It's not, it's not teaching about demons, it's teaching of demons uh, that he's afraid of coming in. Uh, the an interjection of error into the church. We shouldn't be surprised then that error and false doctrine are so prevalent as you read through church history. Um, basically, Paul's saying that's, that's going to be the case even back here in the first century. Um, this may be, I, I'm not sure, this, what Paul's talking about here where he says the Spirit uh, explicitly says... Uh, that may be a reference to uh, the insight that Paul received um, in relationship to the church there at Ephesus. You remember, if you uh, look back to Acts chapter 20, when he meets with the elders there um, from Ephesus, he's... Uh, on his way to Rome, and, and he meets with these elders um, really for the last time. And one of the things he says in the midst of his conversation with them is in uh, Acts twenty twenty nine. he says, But I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So, um, you know, it may be at that time is when Paul began to sense uh, from the Holy Spirit that there was going to be this, um, this uh, coming in of doctrines of demons into the church at Ephesus. Um, but it wasn't just Paul that emphasized this. It was a general truth that the Lord himself taught a number of times in Matthew twenty four eleven. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead astray the elect, to lead the elect astray. So this was something that was being taught in the early church, that there was going to be this apostasy, which is a turning away 
uh, departing from the faith. Uh, Paul, you know, the, he says the ultimate source of that uh, are deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, but those things come by way of men. Uh, it may be demonic in its origin, but the instruments are men. In other words, what's happening is that Satan is planting lies in the hearts and lives of men and women to get them to present things that aren't true and to believe things that aren't, and to have others believe things that aren't true. Um, what kind of men and women does uh, are used in that capacity by, by uh, Satan? Well, he mentions certain things here. He mentions hypocrites, liars, and people with seared conscience. Person with a seared conscience. What would that be as far as a seared conscience? Well, it would be a person who re- repeatedly violates their conscience. That's how you sear your conscience. You, you go against it enough and pretty soon it doesn't register anymore. That's a seared conscience. If we don't keep a good conscience, we'll make shipwreck of our faith and possibly the faith of others. Uh, and the fact is that some people go against their God-given conscience, their moral monitor that God's put there. They go against it so much that they have what Paul says calls a seared conscience. And the picture there, since he mentions a, a branding iron, the pic- picture there is to have something seared so much that the, the, the for instance, your finger seared so much, so often, that the, the, it loses its sensitivity. The nerves are, are completely damaged. Uh, they're burned so bad there's no feeling. There's, they become insensitive. And, and when we're talking about our conscience being seared, it's the idea that uh, we, that person no longer knows right from wrong. And so they're a prime target for, for a doctrine of demon to, demons to come in and say, here, now here's what you should believe. Listen to this. And they're, they're set up for it. So the hypocrite, the liar, and the person with the seared conscience are the ones that uh, are used in this capacity to present these, uh, these doctrines of demons. Now, sin has so seared and numbed the conscience that Satan can readily use them to spread his lies. In fact, I mean, they get to the place where they don't, they don't realize this is a lie anymore. In fact, they present it in all sincerity. I mean, this person that's talking to you about this doctrine may seem extremely sincere, because they are. They've had their conscience so seared that they are in the place now when, when they're presenting error, they think they're pleasing God. So it's a frightening thing to think about. Paul goes on to tell us a, a couple of specific lies that he was speaking of uh, that uh, were being presented at this time. Now this is kind of the, the, the initial beginning of something much bigger that went on in the 2nd and 3rd century, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the initial thing that was being presented here at this time is in verse 3. <clears throat> Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. So two things, forbidding marriage and, and uh, abstaining from food. 
Now I said that's kind of the beginning of something that later on blossomed, and that uh, the, the the movement that came later on that w- was just beginning at this time uh, was a thing called Gnosticism. It's spelled with a G, but it's, it's pronounced Gnosticism. And the idea, the reason it has that name is that Gnosis is a Greek word for knowledge. And what they were saying is that salvation came by way of a certain enlightened knowledge. It wasn't by faith in the truth, but it was a certain mystical enlightenment that you would have, a certain knowledge that you, a secret knowledge that you would have um, given to you. And uh, this may be, uh, what if you turn to the last chapter of 1 Timothy, <clears throat> this may be what Paul is referring to here in... in uh, Chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, if you were reading that in the Greek, you would have seen the word uh, gnosis uh, from where this word uh, Gnosticism comes from. So, anyway, um, what he's talking about here was the beginning of this major challenge to the church in the second, third, fourth, and kind of uh, died out in this form anyway uh, in the uh, fifth century, but it's taken many different manifestations since then. But anyway, first of all, the idea of a, a special secret knowledge that, that you have, that there's, a, in other words, there's an there's a, uh, intellectual elite that get this knowledge. Nobody else has it. Uh, so what that does is give you an inflated idea about yourself. Whenever you get that idea, you know, this worthy, worthy elite ones, and nobody else knows this, uh, and uh, it's an experience that I've had, and I've had it because of my special status, uh, you can be sure there's something wrong because it caters to pride. And... So the first thing to notice here is that uh, ignorance, not sin, was man's big problem. That's what they were saying. Ignorance. You need to have this knowledge, and that'll get you right. That'll make you in the position God wants you to be in. So not, sin wasn't the big problem. Uh, ignorance was. The second thing that uh, was characteristic of these Gnostics which, again, was what we're seeing the beginning of here uh, that Paul was starting to deal with here at Ephesus and have Timothy deal with. The, other, the uh, second thing that was uh, important or uh, part of their teaching was that uh, the material creation was evil. And that's how it's come they uh, had these particular teachings right here. They forbid marriage and advocated uh, abstaining from foods. It, all that stemmed from the idea that the material creation itself was evil. Anything related to the human body or uh, material things was somehow contaminated and contaminating. Uh, so they favored the abuse of the body. Let me just read, probably I can do better by... Uh, quoting some other men on this thing of Gnosticism. 
One man said, Among Gnosticism's many strange teachings, some adherents taught that the physical world was intrinsically evil and that the human body was the cage for the spirit. Cage, you see. Only by rejecting the physical world and its delights could the spirit be set free to soar. Gnostics taught the dualistic belief in in which the spiritual world was regarded as good and the physical world was regarded as evil. It was a dualism where you had eternally uh, two uh, con- contrasting and conflicting uh, uh, manifestations of reality, the physical and the, the spiritual. And they, they were always there. And they were always in conflict with one another. And the physical was evil and the spiritual was good. This man goes on to say, Some branches of Gnosticism manifested in extreme asceticism. Um, Their their adherents swore off sex and marriage and often subjected themselves to long fast and rigid diets in order to weaken their bodies so their spirits could be freed. They believed that that the secret to setting the spirit free was this secret knowledge, this gnosis, imparted by mystical revelation, usually through visions and, and angelic encounters. So, all this, of course, is counter to the Christian's source of godliness, which is Christ. It's just a, it's a legalistic thing, you see. It's, it's looking at something uh, that you can do uh, that will make you right with God apart f- from what God has done for us in Christ. So, uh, let's see. Seems like I had one. Oh, yeah. One other one might make it a little bit... Some of these kind of overlap. Uh, the essence of Gnosticism was that the spirit is altogether good and matter is altogether evil. One of the consequences was that there were men who preached that everything to do with the body was evil and everything in the world was evil. In Ephesus, this issued in two definite errors. The heretics insisted that men must, as far as possible, abstain from food, for food was material and therefore evil. Food ministered to the body, and the body was evil. They also insisted that, that a man must abstain from marriage, for the instincts of the body were evil and must in, be entirely suppressed. So that's, that's what was beginning to show forth here in, in uh, Ephesus. And Paul was uh, warning against this even as it was just, uh, just beginning. Um, Well, from these small beginnings then came this major challenge to the basic teaching of Christianity. And I I think we can see how this really challenges three great distinctions of biblical truth. First of all, it's a distortion of our view of God and of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, why is that? Well, because they said that the God that... uh, made this material realm can't be the highest God, can't be the really great God because anything related to the material realm is evil. So they said the God of the Old Testament uh, isn't really 
the God we should be worshiping because he created this. So they take away from the teaching related to what God is like and what he's done. They also then do away with most of the Old Testament. So you have two foundational things right there. Just from this idea of the material realm being evil, you've got the idea of our, that, that the Bible, that the teaching of the Bible related to God is wrong and that we can't really go by the Old Testament. Actually, they, uh, as Gnosticism grew, they left behind parts of the New Testament too, which is another thing to be aware of. Anytime you start seeing a selective use of the Bible, you need to be careful. Uh, you know, we'll take this part, but we won't take this part, which is what the Gnostics were doing. We, we'll take this teaching here, but we won't take this one here. Uh, so that's a, a f- the first distortion has to do with God and, uh, and the Scriptures. The second distortion, of course, has to do with uh, the way of salvation. This Gnostic type of teaching, this thing of, of abstaining from foods and mar- forbidding marriage, it's a legalistic view of salvation. You're made right. You can earn salvation through certain uh, abstinences or religious uh, ceremonies and, and duties, which, of course, is not what salvation is all about. So you've got a distortion of God, the Scriptures, the distortion of the view of salvation, and lastly, you end up having a very distorted view of Christ, um, a false view of Christ. Jesus could not have come in the flesh. Why? Because the flesh is material. So you have they they got into a thing later on of a the idea of uh, he seemed to have to have been here in the flesh, but it wasn't real. In other words, they deny the true humanity of Christ, and they have some kind of a spiritual Christ. But if it's just it. Sometimes we don't realize this, but it's just as important to have a a human Christ as it is to have a divine Christ. You have to have both or you don't have salvation. And they were denying the humanity, the true humanity of Christ. He could not have come in the flesh because matter is evil. So they had a some type of a spiritual Christ that did not die on the cross or raise from the dead. So you can see why, even though initially, if you just read forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food, you might say, well, those don't seem like really major things, you know. But they are the beginnings of what goes off into totally teaching a wrong view of God, wrong view of the Bible, wrong view of salvation, a wrong view of Christ. In other words, they are doctrines of demons, uh, forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods. So uh, another principle here is just that you let a little wedge of air get in and it can have massive ramifications down, down the line. It can be used to undermine some of the most basic truths of Christianity. Just this idea, just the one idea of matter being evil can go off into so many uh, wrong areas. Denial of the basic truths of Christianity. So how does Paul answer this denial of the basic truth of Christianity? He goes to a very, very basic view, uh, basic truth to combat this error. You see it in um, the uh, 
well, beginning in, in uh, verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. What's he saying? He's saying, God, who is all good, created these things for man so they can't be bad. You see what he's doing? He's going, where is he going to? He's going way back to the very beginning. He's going back to Genesis 1. And uh, God says uh, that these things are good. He says that uh, when he's done creating, and, it, and it's very good. So, if a good God's created these things, then they can't be bad, uh, as the Gnostics are saying. Matter is not intrinsically evil. Uh, so that's, that's Paul's way of dealing with this. He takes a, a fundamental, very basic uh, teaching from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and says you missed, you, you missed the boat before you even got on it. You, you, you don't even understand square one. Um, God saw that everything he had made was good and behold, he said, behold, it was very good. And he said this about marriage too. He's the one who introduced marriage and um, instructed uh, instituted it and he said be fruitful and multiply if God said be fruitful and multiply then uh, to forbid marriage can't be right right <clears throat> so these prohibitions are in direct conflict with the purpose of the creator especially his purpose for his people which he says those who believe and love the truth See, this is the, one of the great blessings of believing and knowing the truth. It keeps you from going off into some crazy teaching that will end up uh, making shipwreck of your faith if you believe and know the truth. Now, I, it is possible to take uh, a verse like verse 4 and misapply it. Um, you know, you say, well, God created opium. So if I just receive it with gratitude, I'm, I'm all right. Um, God created poppies, and there was a purpose for them. If we, if we use the things that he's created for the purpose that he created them, we'll be all right. We can use some of the things he created for purposes that he has no intention of us using them for and that, that are sinful. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying if, if we believe and know the truth of what God has created things for, then we'll be all right. Um, so, um, we need to study God's word concerning, well, for instance, I mean on this thing like heroin or something, uh, we need to study God's word concerning the body being in the temple of, of the Holy Spirit and uh, the abuse of substances that impair the proper function of the mind and body uh, that God has given us. So God created things are good for the purposes that he created them for. And that's what we can learn by knowing the word of God. 
uh, we must, uh, must take our concepts of right and wrong from the Word of God. Otherwise, we can end up following these seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Um, so you have this false concept that the physical is contaminated and should be renounced. And that ha- was beginning to show itself here in the first century. It expanded off out in, in the next centuries, and it's still around today. Uh, it's played the church church down through the centuries. Let me just give you some extreme examples here because it just shows you where you can go with something like this. Uh, in the fourth, third and fourth century, it manifested itself in <clears throat> people who were called hermits and monks that went off to live in the desert. Uh, they uh, are uh, sometimes called ascetics, but they, uh, they went to extremes. For instance, you had some that were, that, uh, were called pillar saints. And by, they were called that because they would get up on the top of a pillar and stay there. And that, uh, that, that's an extreme uh, abuse of the body to live on top of a pillar. Uh, never come down. Um, well, there's one, this Simon Stylite, this was in 423, he began living on a pillar. And for the next 36 years, he lived on, the, on a platform on the top of that, on this pillar. 60 feet high in the air. Now, that was supposed to be spiritual. Uh, People would come to listen to him preach. I doubt if he spoke on this section of Scripture. (laughs) Uh, Probably didn't speak on Colossians 2.23 either, where it says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and of self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. There's, uh, again, a selective use of scriptures and what he would preach on, I'm sure. But uh, he had the reputation of being someone that uh, was very holy up there on the top of this pillar. I, I, know, I know he couldn't be an overseer um, because it says an overseer, that's an elder, overseer, must be above reproach. Well, he was above, <laughs> above reproach, but he's a husband of one wife who didn't fit that, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable. Now, uh, able to teach. Uh, anyway. Um, he could have been hospitable. <laughs> Nobody would want to visit him. But uh, let me just give you. I mean, these are these are humorous in one way, but it, it's pretty sad to think about um, this being thought of as being godliness. Um, the monks and hermits of the fourth century uh, they went away and lived in the Egyptian desert, entirely cut off from man. They spent their lives mortifying the flesh. Uh, supposedly. Uh, one, here, one never ate cooked food uh, and was famous for his fleshlessness, which I don't even know what that means. I guess he never ate any meat. 
<clears throat> Another stood all night on a jutting crag so that it was impossible for him to sleep. You're out on this ledge, and if you go to sleep, you fall over, so that's, you stay awake. That's sure holy. Um, Another was famous because he allowed his body to become so dirty and neglected that vermin dropped from him as he walked. I don't understand. I mean, it's just incredible that this was considered holiness. <clears throat> Another deliberately ate salt in midsummer and then abstained from drinking water. I wonder how long that lasted. <laughs> um, you, still, you see this stuff in the, in the religions of the world, too, you know. Here's this holy man that's laying on a bed of nails. Now, what possible good does that do for your sanctification? Uh, it's just foolishness, but these are considered to be holy because of these uh, severe treatment of the body. Well, anyway, that's some example of <clears throat> this type of thing. By the time of the Middle Ages, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, you had all these priests and monks and nuns that couldn't be married, and you had all these fast days and that type of thing. Uh, so it's still around. And today, anytime we have the thought that it's un, unspiritual to enjoy a good meal, or to enjoy a beautiful sunset, or that the marriage bed is defiling, or that abuse of the body can make you right with God. All those things are tendencies to, that go back to this whole Gnostic idea, and we need to be on the lookout for that type of thing creeping in. <clears throat> The basic problem here is rejecting something as evil or worthless or contaminating which God has given as good. What's the proper way of using these things that God has given to us? He says, um, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by the means of the word, of, by the means of the word of God and prayer. So, first thing that comes out real clearly there is gratitude. Right? He says it twice. These wonderful things that God has given, our attitude uh, should be thankfulness for all the kindness in the material realm that God has shown us. Blessings. Not just spiritual blessings, but material blessings. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's from God, you see. And so uh, we should acknowledge that, not just uh, take those things and use them, but thank God for them. Give thanks. The other thing that he brings out here and it's implied, is this, these are gifts. Uh, we should always remember that they're gifts from our Creator, not just take them for granted. Things like food and clothing and homes and cars and electricity and medicine. <clears throat> remember the gracious gift that God has given in those things.
And I think there may, may be kind of implied here where it says, uh, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. It's kind of, there's the idea there partly of just sharing these things too, you see. It's not just taking these things to yourself and say, thank, thank God for this, you know. But the idea of taking what he's given and using it for the common good, uh, sharing, not selfish hoarding, but an attitude of kindness in, what, in using what God has given. And then the proper way to use these gifts <clears throat> is to realize that they are sanctified by the Word of God, by means of the Word of God and prayer. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that they're sanctified, they're set apart by God for us. That's the first thing. How do we know? Well, we know that's, uh, that's how we need to know the Word of God. You know what God has set, uh, set apart for us. Sanctified by, the, <clears throat> by means of the Word of God um, and prayer. Holy God has set them apart for us, and we are to set them apart for Him by prayer. Thanking God for them and asking His blessing on them. The Word of God and prayer must be brought to even our common actions and affairs of life. And then we can do what we do in faith and for God's glory. <clears throat> I wanted to read just one uh, explanation of this. It's <clears throat> talking about, especially related to foods here, we know that <clears throat> uh, God has given us um, things to eat, to enjoy, because He said that. Um, and we're freely to use whatever was fit for food in the vegetable and animal kingdoms. The Word of God in these passages, he quotes some, some of the scriptures, uh, the Word of God in these passages forever sanctified all for man's use, and if man on his part, taking God's Word for his warrant, gratefully acknowledges God's hand in these gifts bestowed and entreats his blessing on them, the sanctification is complete both ways, objectively by the Word of God and subjectively by prayer. In other words, He gives them to us and we uh, give thanks for that. So we know what He's given us through the Word of God and then we turn around and thank Him for that. So they're sanctified, they're set apart, they're consecrated, you might almost, almost say, they're consecrated <clears throat> by the Word of God and prayer. Well, uh, I'll stop there. But uh, again, this, the, the, the thing that brought this whole discussion up was that <clears throat> Paul says that uh, he was hoping to come to them, but it, in case he was delayed, he was writing so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So he was just wanting to give basic instruction to Timothy so that Timothy could give it to the church there at Ephesus <clears throat> related to how we should conduct ourselves. And then, he go, and then he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness 
our, our walk with God, being pleasing to God, is centered then on Christ, uh, which he quotes this hymn. And he says, now there's going to be all kinds of things coming along that will want to distract you away from that, get you looking at other things. But if you're going to have true godliness, you're going to have to look to Christ. <clears throat> and uh, it's, it's found in him. It's summed up in him. And uh, don't, don't uh, look anywhere else. <clears throat>